Well, this morning we've been going through Luke's gospel, so let's continue there. We're in Luke chapter 16, if you want to turn there together with me. And while we're turning in our Bibles, if you need a Bible to follow along, you can just slip your hand up. There's guys coming up the aisle with some Bibles, and they can hand you one so you can follow along in God's Word with us this morning. Luke 16, we began the chapter last week, and we went down as far as verse 13. And I'm going to steal back and utilize a part of verse 13 for our study this morning. We're going to go from 13 or 14 down to verse 18, where there's a clear break at. But I think verse 13 is kind of a hinge verse a little bit. It's certainly verse 13, the last thing Jesus said, connects with where we're going this morning in verse 14 as well. So we'll touch back again on verse 13 a little bit uh, as it lays a foundation for Jesus' statement there in verse 14. But if you're turned to Luke 16, would you stand with me as we read the Word of God for this morning's study? Luke 16 Verse 14 tells us, Now the Pharisees, who were lovers of money, also heard these things, and they derided him. And he said to them, You are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts. For what is highly esteemed among men is an abomination in the sight of God. The law and the prophets were until John... Since that time, the kingdom of God has been preached and everyone is pressing into it. And it is easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one tittle of the law to fail. Whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery. And whoever marries her who is divorced from her husband commits adultery. And Father, we ask for your assistance as we open up the Word of God this morning, we realize that it is a spiritual book. It's unlike anything else we read or look at. So we confess our need as human beings for your Holy Spirit to just help us. Lord, we pray, even just help us with our attention, our alertness. Father, you know the condition of our heart and the things on our minds even this morning as we come here and we sit in these seats. So would you just meet us, Lord? We've drawn near to you and we ask you now to draw near to us and do it through your word that we could each hear not wise or persuasive words of a man, but we could each experience that demonstration of your spirit and your power just speaking a personal word to each and every one of our lives. Prepare us, Lord. Bless your word and speak to us this morning. We ask, believing that's what you want to do in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen, amen. You may be seated. You know, what do you value as most important to you in your life? I think that's a good question to ask every once in a while. And the reason why I ask that as we begin our study this morning, what do you value as most important in your life? The reason being is because oftentimes that's what determines how you make your choices. Oftentimes that's the very thing that uh, influences your actions and different matters. And I see Jesus here in these verses that we're looking at in our next study this morning. I see Jesus here really challenging the value system of men. It becomes pretty obvious, especially in some of these verses, that Jesus is trying to show how oftentimes our value system, what we esteem or think is important, that many times our value system is vastly different than God's value system and what God deems important 
in his perspective. Now, again, in verse 13, where we ended off last week, remember, Jesus had just said the following statement. Look at verse 13 with me again. As I said, Jesus had just said, and he was speaking to his disciples particularly, but it seems the Pharisees were within earshot and somehow heard these same statements. He said in verse 13, no servant can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will be loyal to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon, or as we might understand, you cannot serve God and money. Now, verse 13, as I said, I think is kind of a hinge verse connecting us to the next statements that we come into in verse 14. Jesus in verse 13 was declaring that whatever we esteem as most important in our lives is clearly going to be the thing that we are going to serve. What we are loyal to, what we love is a clear revelation of what we do say what we may, it's a clear revelation of what we do put the most value upon. And that's why we give it our loyalty and that's why we give it our love and our dedication. Oftentimes you can tell a lot about a person. Oftentimes I can tell a lot about myself by just very simply evaluating their or your own loyalty and loves and the things that you give the most dedication to. That's what Jesus is simply declaring here. What we determine is most valuable is what we will give our greatest loyalty to. It's just the way that things work. And Jesus in verse 13 here in this section was warning and giving a warning against the danger of overvaluing overvaluing the importance of money in any one of our lives whereby we ultimately can even become, as Jesus indicates, enslaved to it. It's interesting that term there, you cannot serve God and money, literally could indicate you cannot be enslaved to God and to money. That there can really only be one master and how money can take the place of God in a person's life. It really can. Whereby money ends up being the thing that a person is governed by and guided by and they bow down to the altar of their own human greed that rages inside of them and, and they end up serving money and serving it for its rewards and what it does reward and give even as God himself can give rewards. Now again, as I've said before, and let me say again, the Bible teaches that there is nothing wrong in and of itself with being wealthy. There's nothing wrong with money in and of itself. You know, it bothers me when I hear people try and quote 1 Timothy 6 and they say money is the root of all kinds of evil. That is not what the Bible says. The Bible says the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. The Bible teaches very clearly that money, in a sense, is a neutral instrument. There are many godly men in the scriptures who uh, love the Lord, and yet they were very wealthy. Solomon and, and David and Abraham, we, we find that. And there are many godly people in this world who love the Lord, and yet they're also very wealthy. And God's blessed them and endowed them with an ability to succeed and to, to have a great amount of finances. And that's, that's the lot that God gave them in their life. So please never misunderstand what the scripture teaches. What Jesus is saying is we cannot allow money to be what masters or rules our life. That's what's important. That we cannot allow money to begin to control us where we submit to it as in a sense like it's our master and we are in complete servitude to it. And therefore, that's why Jesus says here, you cannot serve God and serve money. The idea is simultaneously. 
You can't be enslaved to two different things. Just like you cannot drive north and south at the exact same time, in the same way, you cannot serve two things, Jesus says. It's just an impossibility. Just like you can only move in one direction, you really can only be submitted to one master in your life. And everybody's mastered by something. But it's impossible to have two masters, and we must decide, therefore, what option or what master or what thing that we're going to discern. That's the thing that we have a choice in. So Jesus says you cannot serve two masters. You have to choose what's going to be in charge in your life. And in this particular situation, Jesus, realizing everyone has to decide to serve something, he knows what a powerful sway, what an incredible enticement money is in our lives. He understands our sinful hearts more than anybody else. And therefore, we find Jesus addressing it head on, saying here, listen, you cannot. You can't be enslaved to both things. You cannot faithfully serve God if you are really more fully dedicated and in love with money as the master and the ruler of your life. Now, that's what leads us to verse 14 because we read now the Pharisees, take note verse 14, now the Pharisees who were what? Lovers of money. They also heard Jesus saying these things and they began to deride him. Now, whenever somebody is living in error, Whenever someone is not headed the direction they're supposed to go and they're living in error, would you agree they don't like to hear the truth? And usually when somebody's living in error and you share the truth with them, typically it touches a nerve in their life and it disturbs them. And many times it draws out a defensive attitude. And that's exactly what we see happening here, you notice in verse 14, with the Pharisees. Remember, as we've said before, the Pharisees in Jesus' day were religious leaders who gave strict adherence to religious rules and ceremonies. Now, tragically, by this point in Jesus' day, all of the rules and the ceremonies and religious observances they were committed to had lost all personal meaning for them in their lives. Even if it began with the right intention, by this point... It had become nothing more really than just religious performance. It was just spiritual duty and obligation. And the Pharisees were plagued by religious and spiritual hypocrisy. In fact, Jesus in Matthew 23, where he addresses that continuously in a sort of message to them. In Matthew 23, Jesus said of the Pharisees this. He said, all their works they do to be seen of men. In other words, they pretended to love and serve God when in reality they really were very still much self-seeking. They were just doing it to be seen of men, the religious things that they did. So Jesus begins to reveal as he speaks to the Pharisees, the Holy Spirit draws up to the surface and reveals to us in the scripture in verse 14 once again what these Pharisees what they really valued most of all and notice what they valued most of all was not pleasing God it actually was pleasing themselves and that becomes indicated to us by this great motivator of self-satisfaction by the things that they loved 
under the surface where no one else could see in their lives. Of course, it was manifest by their behavior. Now, Jesus said they loved many things. On one occasion, Jesus spoke of how they loved their admiration and they loved to have titles spoken of their lives and they loved attention, so they loved the best seats in the synagogues and the greetings in the marketplaces. Well, now the Holy Spirit indicates another very interesting thing regarding the Pharisees in verse 14. We're told here that the Pharisees also, it says, were lovers of money. That this is something else that was true about them. Now, whenever you love something, you could say that's the thing that you yearn for. That's the thing that you're motivated by. You can always tell when somebody's falling in love. Because they begin to yearn for another person. They always want to be with that person. Everything they're doing is motivated by the love and, and affections they're starting to feel for that person. You know, I, I remember that in, in my own life, how when I met my wife and began to fall in love with my wife, I began to yearn to want to spend time with her. I wanted to spend more time with her than I wanted to do with everything else. And my life began in many ways to be motivated by being able to be with her and spend time with her. And my world began in many ways to sort of revolve around her life. You know, I, used to, I used to exercise six days a week, which I tell you I'm sure of because of the physique I have still. But I, I did, actually. I, my wife would look at old pictures of myself. I was about 15 pounds heavier than, than I am now. And I used to exercise six days a week. I was in the gym, very committed. And people, how come you don't exercise anymore? Met her. <laughs> want to be with her instead and it's amazing how you know when, when you you can tell when a guy's falling in love all of a sudden you know his hygiene habits change you know, he's, he's popping gum in his mouth because he realizes the reality of when and, and all these things what a person begins to be motivated and they begin to yearn and everything within them directs them to act in ways because of the love that they're feeling towards another person and love has a way of doing that. And whether it's falling in love with a person or loving something, there are times where I sit down with individuals who are struggling maybe with a particular habit or addiction in their life. And they're almost astonished when you look at them and say, do you know why you do what you do? Because you love those drugs. You love them. Why do you keep staring at the things you know on computers? Because you love it. Well, that's, all, that's what it is. It's something that we create a devote and love motivates us. And here Jesus is addressing something and the Pharisees, as they hear it, become very alarmed and upset because the Bible tells us here in verse 14 that they actually were lovers of money. This was their relationship towards money. They yearned for money and money really had such a high place in their life that it motivated everything about them. They might have had a pious public image, but internally they were greedy and they, they were lovers of money. In fact, Jesus says in Matthew 23, 14, woe to you scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, listen to what he says of them. He says, you devour widows' houses and then for a pretense make long prayers. Do you hear what Jesus said about those religious leaders in the day? He said, you devour widows' houses. What he means by that is you financially manipulate those who are naive and defenseless and take advantage of widows, of all people. You financially manipulate widows and then for a pretense, a cover-up, you make long prayers. In other words, you're manipulating people financially and then as an act of spiritual cover-up, you use spiritual activity to cover up 
your greedy, manipulative behaviors. Boy, nothing much new under the sun. Just watch TV. And you can see the same kind of thing going on a lot of times nowadays. And this was one of the downfalls of the Pharisees is they were so motivated by their desire to be enriched. And let me explain. Part of the reason behind that was they had a wrong perspective of what it meant to be prospered. A lot of what motivated the Pharisees' justification to live lucrative the way that they did as religious leaders in Israel is they truly believed that if one lived righteous before God, he would be prospered and should be prospered. And therefore, in their estimation, they believe prosperity was an indication of God's blessing upon someone's life. Now, that may be true, but that is not always the case. That's not a rule or a standard that you can automatically develop that if someone's prospered and blessed, well, then they're right with God. And if somebody's struggling or, or poor, then, then they're not right with God. But the Pharisees use this as their justification for their lucrative lifestyle that, hey, we just live right before God and, and therefore we're entitled and we deserve to live in the ways that we do. And in essence, they pretended to be humble and sacrificial when the reality was under the surface, Jesus says they were lovers of money and full of greed. They professed to love and to serve God, but the reality was they were proving by their actions something completely differently. And I'll tell you, it is indeed to me a sad testimony and a tragic thing when people profess verbally with their mouths to serve God and then by their actions demonstrate that they honestly serve something completely different creates such confusion, such confusion. And one of the areas many times I've seen people do this is in relation to money. People, you know, they profess, oh, I serve God, I love God, I live for the Lord. I, I, and then you look at the way they live their life and it's obvious that they're more interested and consumed with other things that, well, you may profess one thing with your mouth, but the way you live and the concessions you make and the compromises you make and, and what you chase and pursue after and what you give the majority of your time to indicates something very, very different by your actions. And this was the case with these Pharisees as they lived in that day. And let me just say this by way of application for us. Love of money and being a lover of money is a danger that we all, Listen to me, we all must guard against. The love of money is not just a rich person's struggle and temptation. It's a contentment issue. It is a snare both for wealthy and the poorest of poor alike. See, the love of money for the wealthy can be a danger because they have acquired a lot and they already possess a lot. Many times, like a fire that continues to burn, they just they want to indulge more and they want to acquire more. And it can be a snare for them to become a lover of money once they begin to acquire a lot and they're propelled to go for more. But by the same token, Someone who is in a very poor condition or in a lower standard of living can become very tired of living at that standard and therefore the love of money as a temptation in their life makes them crave and thirst to have more to where they begin to make compromises and concessions because they want to get more money because they're tired of living at the status or maybe station economically in life where God has allowed them to live at. Listen to what Paul says in 1 Timothy 6, verses 5 through 10. He says this, 1 Timothy 6, 5 through 10. Some suppose that godliness is a means of gain. From such withdraw yourself. Now godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into this world, and it's certain we can carry nothing back out. And having food and clothing, with these we shall be content. But those who desire to be rich... 
fall into temptation and a snare and into many foolish and harmful lusts which drown men in destruction and perdition. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil for which some having strayed from the faith in their greediness and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. Do you see what the Bible teaches? It's talking about contentment. Godliness with contentment is great gain. And then it transitions right into saying, but those who desire to be rich, and he's addressing Christians in that letter, may I add. But those who desire to be rich, he says, they many a times fall into temptation and a snare and that desire to be rich and they end up entering into foolish and harmful lusts which drown people. Well, look at some people who are drowning in regret in their lives and, and many times you can trace it back to they were tempted to act in foolish ways and get involved in things because of their desire to be rich and they ended up getting themselves into something where they're in a whirlpool drowning in regret and mistakes and things in their life because of it traced back the thing of that driving desire to be rich in their life and he even warns from a spiritual perspective. He says that the love of money can be that root of all kinds of evil, he says, whereby some even have strayed from the faith, walked away from the Lord, or walked away from maybe a life that was once way more dedicated to the Lord where the things of God were top priority, but now they, they've come all the way down here in priority level because instead they're too busy concerned about the promotion or the extra overtime pay or you know whatever it may be or they want to acquire that boat or whatever. So because of that, they don't have time for the things of the Lord anymore because the material things of life have become more consuming to them and they end up straying away from Bible study and serving the Lord and having time to walk with Jesus in closeness, maybe the way they once did because of that driving desire. And one's love of money is very important, let me say why we're here, in regards to church leadership and to spiritual oversight. The Bible declares a lover of money is not the type of person for leading in God's ministry. Paul says to Timothy in 1 Timothy 3 that church leaders cannot be greedy for money. doesn't go together. Peter says in 1 Peter 5.2, giving instructions to the elders and New Testament church leaders, he tells the leaders, shepherd the flock of God which is among you, serving as overseers, not by compulsion, but willingly, not for dishonest gain, but eagerly. Now, as Jesus said this statement, you cannot be serving God and serving money at the same time. As these religious leaders heard that in their ears, it confronted their lifestyle. And like I said, it was like touching a nerve and it created a reaction as a result. That's why verse 14 says, when they heard these things as lovers of money, they began to deride him. The idea is they started to ridicule Jesus. They started to sneer at him and put him down. You can almost hear them, who knows what they were saying, but potentially saying something like, what does this guy know? He's just a poor Jewish rabbi. And the only reason he says that is because he doesn't have wealth. He's just picking on us because we do have wealth. <laughs> He's just a poor Jewish rabbi. And they began to deride Jesus. And why? The bottom line being this. When people don't want to acknowledge the truth, they become very defensive in their reaction to it. So they begin to attack the truth in a defense mechanism rather than having to embrace the truth that they know is pricking their conscience or touching a nerve in their life. Well, verse 15, Jesus then responding said to them, you are those, talking to the Pharisees, who justify yourselves before men. 
But God knows your hearts. For what is highly esteemed among men is an abomination in the sight of God. So Jesus is confronting the Pharisees and in so doing, he also here reveals to us in these verses what God's value system really is. And he shows us how God estimates things and how God evaluates things from his perspective. He says in verse 15, you justify yourselves before men. One translation renders that you advertise your goodness before men. That's interesting. You advertise your goodness before men. They were great at advertising in their outward public impression of what they were really like in front of other people to make what they were doing appear attractive and acceptable. They could act and represent themselves publicly very well. They were very good at pretending and putting on a performance to convince people of who they were and that there was nothing wrong with who they were. They became masters of covering up what they really were underneath it all. Jesus said of the Pharisees in Matthew 23, he said this, you outwardly appear righteous to men, but inside you are full of extortion, self-indulgence, and all uncleanness. That's why Jesus says here in the beginning of verse 15, you justify or advertise yourselves well before men, he says, but God knows your hearts. See, despite the performance they could put publicly and the presentation, God knew the condition of their heart. What was their error? Their error was they forgot that they were ultimately accountable to God himself. Their error was that they became more interested in the acceptance of people around them than having the approval and the acceptance of God himself who created them, who was helping them breathe and who they were going to stand and give eternal account before one day. They had lost perspective on that. And because they failed to remember that and acknowledge that and valued the approval of people rather than the acceptance of God, they found themselves in a precarious position. I'll tell you something. One of the greatest plagues to me indeed one of the greatest plagues of our sinful nature within all of us is that we can become quite good at putting on a performance in front of other people. And we all have a tendency to do it in different ways where we can become ultimately masters at covering up who we really are and somehow hiding and covering over what is really happening under the surface in our lives. You know, perhaps you're here this morning and maybe you are doing that in some way. You have learned how to masquerade and how to present yourself and how to perform publicly in front of others in a fantastic way. And you've got everybody fooled. And you even know how potentially with one crowd to act one way and with another crowd to act another way. And you figured it out, what to say and how to act. And, and, and you know exactly what's going on in here in your own heart where you wrestle and when you lay your head down on your pillow at night, what's going on inside of your life under the surface, but yet we can become incredibly capable of performing well in front of others and pretending in front of other people. And Jesus says here, listen, remember, but God knows your heart. Maybe nobody else does, but God knows your heart. God watches the way you act in front of everyone else, and maybe no one, but God knows your heart. He knows exactly what's happening inside. And therefore, 
what do you think God values? The condition of your heart. Not your public performance. Not my ability at times to be a hypocrite and pretend myself. And Christians are the master of this. You, know, you could have this morning got up later than you wanted to and as you came down the steps you, you, you slipped on one of your kid's toys and then you stepped on the cat's tail and then you stubbed your toe and, and got all upset and angry. Then you're yelling at everybody to get out of the house and you're fighting with your wife and family the whole way over here and then you hit traffic and you get a little more frustrated and now you're running behind and oh great and, and then you, walk, and you pull into the parking lot and somebody says, hey brother, how you doing? Fine. No, you're not. Everything's a mess. You just had the worst morning you've had all week. But God forbid we act normal. God forbid we let people realize that we're human and that's why we need the Lord. We're masters at pretending when the reality is is that God is fully aware of everything going on in our lives and God's concern, what God values, is the condition of your heart. And where the condition of your heart is at. That's what he deals with us in regards to our rewards and even the discipline in our life. The condition of our heart. Listen to what Acts 8 says. Peter there rebuking a man named Simon the sorcerer. He says, your money perish with you because you thought that the gift of God could be purchased with money. You have neither part nor portion in this matter for your heart is not right in the sight of God. Is that you this morning? Could God say your heart is not right in the sight of God? We read in 1 Samuel chapter 16, verse 7, where God's selecting David, who's the most unlikely person to be a king. He was the last pick out of all of his brothers, and for many people, he's probably the last pick in the whole nation of why would you give this guy a role like that? And yet God says in 1 Samuel. Samuel 16, 7, For the Lord does not see as man sees. For man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. See, it applies both ways. It doesn't have to be a negative thing. God sees your heart. Maybe outwardly you look like a failure. Maybe to everyone else you're treated as if, you know, who wants to be friends with you? Why, why would I want to? And, and, and that's how we evaluate. We look at the outward appearance. God looks at the heart. God's concerned about what's happening inside of our hearts. That's what he values. He values sincerity in our hearts and he measures that as the most important thing. Hey, keep your heart right before the Lord. Get your heart right before the Lord. That's what God evaluates. We all fumble and fail in our performance, but get your heart right. The Bible says to keep your heart with all diligence for out of it flow the issues of life. Everything overflows from here. Listen, Get rid of this idea of trying to clean up the outside, okay? Deal with this. You deal with this. God will deal with the rest. God looking at the heart. And sometimes we may utterly fail, but God says, but that's okay. I saw your heart. I saw your heart. I saw your heart in that. In the same way, we might put on the greatest performance and God says, well, everyone else was impressed, but I saw your heart. And I know it was in your heart why you said that or did that or acted that way. And it becomes very obvious with the Pharisees that God's value system is not the same as people. That's why in verse 15, Jesus then says to them, for what is highly esteemed, thought of as so important among men, is an abomination in the sight of God. What God is a different value system. Think for just a moment, if you would, while you're sitting there, of some of the things that we highly esteem among men. 
Oh, this person, man, they're, they're so talented or they're so educated or they're so successful or wow, they have so much or oh, that person, they're so attractive and, and all these things that among men, we esteem certain things. Oh, that's so important and we're so impressed by certain things and Jesus says here, what's highly esteemed is among, among men, all the things that we think are just so important, many of them are an abomination in the sight of God. God looks at him and he says, I'm not impressed with that at all. It means nothing to me. What you're so impressed with, God says, I, quite honestly, I'm disgusted with it. Because God says, I care about things like the heart. What's the heart of the matter? And what a great reminder for us this morning because ask yourself as you recognize what Jesus says that what's highly esteemed among men is an abomination in the sight of God. Ask yourself this question this morning. Whose value system are you using to determine what's important in your life? Are you using the world's value system or are you using God's value system? Important, use God's value system. Don't use the world standard and value system of what's esteemed and what's important. That will greatly mislead you. Use God's value system. It's a much greater reference point. Verse 16, Jesus says, And the law and the prophets were until John, the guy is John the Baptist. And since that time, the kingdom of God has been preached and everyone is pressing into it. And it's easier for heaven and earth to pass away, he says, than for one yod or tittle, as it tells us in Matthew's account, of the law to fail. So at this point, as Jesus is having a conversation with the Pharisees, he now starts to uphold the value of the word of God. And he upholds it in front of the Pharisees because this was something the Pharisees were beginning to ignore and disregard. So he begins now in relation to spiritual life to hold up the value of the scriptures because the Pharisees were guilty of upholding traditions and esteeming traditions as so important and devaluing the importance of scripture itself. And that was an inversion of what was most important to God. God's word has always been and will always be the standard and foundation and basis for everything we should believe and practice in our lives. So Jesus says, verse 16, the law and the prophets, this is what was in force, he says, as a system until the time of John the Baptist. Again, as we read our Old Testament, Israel began under the Old Covenant. And God gave to them under that Old Covenant the law and the sacrificial system. And this was their way to approach God. This was their system of worship. They submitted to the requirements of the Mosaic law over their life. And the Mosaic law was intended to govern them morally and spiritually in their conduct and society and personally. And the Mosaic law was given to them to ultimately guide them to embrace the coming Messiah and Savior that God was sending to them because they couldn't keep the requirements of the law like you and I. They failed in their sinfulness and their weakness. And the law, in all of its commands and its feasts and its sacrifices, as we study all these things in the Old Testament, all those things foreshadowed the Messiah and the coming deliverer. They were pictures and types of this person who was coming as Israel's deliverer for their sin. And the prophets predicted specifically hundreds of years before Jesus ever came describing who he was and what he was going to be like and what he was going to do 
And the law and the prophets were given to them to point to Jesus. In Luke 24, Jesus is speaking on the Emmaus Road with some individuals, and it tells us this. Beginning at Moses and all the prophets, Jesus expounded to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Jesus was giving a Bible study revealing himself using the law and the prophets saying, hey, see that in that feast there, how that points to me and and you see how that particular sacrifice how that is a foreshadowing of who I am and, and what I and he was expounding from the Old Testament things concerning himself that was the system enforced until John the Baptist's ministry at which point Jesus says here in verse 16 since that time the kingdom of God has been preached and everyone is pressing into it see John the Baptist was a transitional prophet he was a transitional prophet to predict the coming king. When John came on the scene, he started baptizing people with a baptism of repentance, saying, hey, prepare the way of the Lord. Repent, the kingdom of God is at hand. The coming king is about to arrive. And he said, there's one coming after me. That's who you should be looking for. And then remember when Jesus showed up on the scene, what did John do? John pointed to Jesus and he said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. No more Passover lamb every year. The lamb of God right there, Jesus, who's going to take away the sin of the world. And he pointed to Jesus as the solution to the problem of man's sin and the coming of the new covenant relationship God was offering through faith in Jesus Christ. And when Jesus arrived, he as well began to speak and preach about the gospel of the good news of the salvation he would offer and the coming kingdom as the king of it. And that was impacting people powerfully where Jesus says, verse 16, that since that time when these things were preached, he says, everyone is pressing into the kingdom. Everyone except the Pharisees, that is. And why weren't the Pharisees pressing to enter into the kingdom? I'll tell you one of the primary reasons was that the Pharisees had failed to uphold the value of God's law and the importance of the word of God and God's law to bring them to the place of salvation in Jesus Christ. See, the law was intended to reveal man's sinfulness. See, unless there's a speed limit sign that says 30 miles an hour, you don't know you're violating the law unless there's a posted sign to tell you you are. That speed limit sign, all it does is say, yes, see, you are violating the law. Some of you all need to repent this morning before you leave here. See, there's something. But that's what the law does. It, it reveals. It shows your... The law showed when they looked at the standard, you missed the mark. I can't keep that. I keep messing up. Right. That's why I'm sending you a savior. That's why I'm sending you a deliverer. And the law was to ready them for receiving a savior. The problem was what? The Pharisees and religious leaders, they had replaced God's word and God's law with tradition. In fact, Jesus himself in Mark 7 addresses this with the Pharisees. Listen to what he says to them. Jesus says, for laying aside the commandment of God, put aside the word of God, you hold the tradition of men washing of pitchers and cups and many other things you do. All too well you reject the commandment of God that you may keep your tradition, making the word of God of no effect through your tradition which you have handed down. Boy, does that sound familiar? In some religious circles today where the traditions of men and religious traditions have superseded what the word of God says? 
And everything's about just keeping the traditions religiously that men have created and everybody's disregarding the reality of what does the scripture say? What does the word of God say? And how come we're not finding Jesus? Well, because Jesus isn't in the traditions. Jesus is in the scripture. He's in the word of God. And they weren't entering into the kingdom because they were missing this. Well, knowing that was the spiritual state of devaluing the word of God, that's why in verse 17, Jesus says, listen, it's easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one little portion of the law to fail. Now, when Jesus uses that term there, it literally refers to the crossing of a T or a dotting of an I or an apostrophe, just one little mark. And Jesus says, it would be easier for heaven and earth to pass away and to fail than it would for just one little apostrophe or dot of an I, a stroke of the Hebrew letter, to fail and not be fulfilled. In other words, it's the enduring quality of the word of God that gives it its value. It's permanent importance, it's permanent effectiveness, and therefore, as Isaiah says, the word of the Lord, it endures forever. That's why it should have such value in our lives. Because it's the one thing that stays reliable. Listen, we don't use the same history books. Why? Because people are always changing them. We don't use the, We're constantly reinterpreting everything else. You can't reinterpret the Word of God. What the Word of God has said from the beginning, it is true, it is reliable, and not one word will fail. I can't promise you that about any business contract, about any relationship, about any person's word or testimony, or anything else you read. I'm not telling you, Jesus is telling you, you can depend on what the word of God says. It will not fail. That's why it should have such great value because that's not going to fail. So I'll bet my life on that because of the tremendous credibility that it has. Now, the Bible says that Christ was the end of the law. Now, does that mean the law is set aside and has no value? Of course not. What that simply teaches that Jesus fulfilled the law and the value of the law still has a place. In essence, I guess we could say it this way, the system of the law and living under the law is now done because Jesus fulfilled the righteous requirements of it. So the system of the law is done away with that we might live by grace and through faith in Jesus Christ. But the standards of the law are still very much alive. And the spirit of the law will always exist and be alive. Let me illustrate. The law said very clearly, you shall have no other gods before me. It is still true that we should have no other gods before him. The law said, thou shalt not lie, thou shalt not murder, thou shalt not steal. It is still wrong to steal. It is still wrong to lie. It is still wrong to do any of the things that the, the word of God tells us in the law. The spirit of the law is still very much alive. The system is not adhered to because we embrace Christ by faith, but the spirit and the standard of the law still exist. The law also said what? Thou shall not commit adultery. And marriage should always be honored. That's still in force. It is always wrong to commit adultery, yet because of the devaluing of God's law, the Pharisees were guilty of, guess what? Creating an atmosphere where adultery was beginning to spread throughout the land of Israel that's the reason why in verse 18 it seems out of place. That's the reason why Jesus pinpoints one major area by saying whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery. And whoever marries her who is divorced from her husband commits 
adultery. So Jesus speaks of the enduring value of the word of God. The Pharisees were devaluing the word of God. And because of that, one major area where there was tremendous compromise happening was in the area of what the scripture taught about thou shalt not commit adultery, you should honor the marriage relationship. Now, let me just briefly say, you and I should never take one verse out of scripture without the totality of the other scriptures about the same subject and develop doctrine. So as we find one marriage and divorce verse here, we must compare it with Genesis 2 and Deuteronomy 24 and Matthew 5 and Matthew 19 and 1 Corinthians 7 and take the totality of what the scriptures say regarding the subject. What we have Jesus doing here in Luke's account is pinpointing one main area where they were devaluing the law, which was in relation to what God's word said about the standard of marriage. See, a problematic issue had developed over the interpretation of the rabbis regarding Deuteronomy chapter 24. And Deuteronomy 24 said this. Let me just briefly read it. It said, When a man takes a wife and marries her, and it happens that she finds no favor in his eyes, because he has found some uncleanness in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce, puts it in her hand, and sends her out of his house, when she's departed from his house and goes and becomes another man's wife, if the latter husband detests her and he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her away, then her former husband who divorced her must not take her back to be his wife again after she has been defiled for that is an abomination before the Lord and you shall not bring sin on the land which the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance. Listen, remember, divorce was never God's idea or God's intention. God did not institute divorce. God instituted marriage. Men instituted divorce. Men created it. And then God became forced to regulate it. Divorce is nothing more than a divine concession to human weakness. The purpose of Deuteronomy 24 was to prohibit the tendency in society for a husband to say, you know what, I'm not thrilled with this wife anymore, so I'm done with her. I'm going to get a new wife. And then to try out his new wife for a while and to say, you know what, I actually in comparison think I like the first wife better. And then to go chase her down and say, look, why don't you leave your new husband and how about you and I get back together again? And God says, whoa, 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 that's going to split a preg of adulterous, immoral behavior all around the nation. So Deuteronomy 24 was written to try and regulate a societal problem of the sinfulness of man regarding failing marriages. But they got all hung up in that one phrase from Deuteronomy 24 about a husband putting his wife away because he found some uncleanness in her. And the question arose in their little minds, wait a minute, what does that mean? Put, a husband, put your wife away because of some uncleanness. And people began to wonder what that referred to. A rabbi named Shammai basically gave a very strict conservative view and said that only refers to sexual impropriety. You married her and found out she wasn't a virgin. Or you married her and then afterwards you found out she was an adultery that quantified and classified as some uncleanness. But yet there were other rabbis, Hillel and Akabah, who took a very liberal outlook and saying that uncleanness that gives you a right to put her away, that could refer to anything. Absolutely anything. So if she burned the eggs in the morning, that's utterly just, that's, it was a, some even taught, Akaba, the rabbi Akaba taught that if you saw another woman more desirable to you than your own wife, your wife was now unclean and therefore it was justification to put her away. 
Now, which view do you think the people in the society liked? The liberal one. And the Pharisees adopted this, and because of that, though the Pharisee would always say, hey, look, it is not right to divorce or commit adultery. However, by the same token, they acknowledged, though you shouldn't commit adultery, the Pharisees condoned divorcing a woman, divorcing your wife if you saw another woman more desirable. And in their mind, they justified saying, listen, as long as you divorce this woman that you're married to now to get the woman that you really want, you've avoided adultery because you divorced her first and therefore you haven't committed adultery. And they were devaluing the sacredness of marriage. And Jesus confronts that here as they're devaluing with a loose interpretation of Scripture the sacredness of the institution of marriage. And Jesus challenges them in verse 18 saying, no, 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 whoever divorces his wife and marries another, you're committing adultery. And that is what it is. And Jesus was challenging again with the word of God as a standard before their lives. The Pharisees' superficial spiritual lives were producing all types of compromise in the culture. And the same is true when we devalue God's word as well. You know, this morning... Great opportunity to ask yourself, what is your value system this morning? How, you know, do you value pleasing God or pleasing yourself first? Do you desire the approval of others or God's acceptance? How do you value the Word of God in your life? What standards do you use to determine what's important and what's not? The world standards or God's standards? How do you value marriage, your own marriage, and the priority that you give to it? Great opportunity for us to ask the Lord maybe to change our hearts if need be in regards to our wrong value system and how that directs us to make choices foolishly. And if you're here this morning and you've never made a commitment to Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord, can I tell you one thing before we close? You're missing the most valuable opportunity that there is to have your sins forgiven and the assurance of eternal life and a relationship with Jesus. And all God's looking for is for you to humbly acknowledge I am what you say I am in your word. I am a sinner and I deserve hell as a result of offending you, God. But I believe that Jesus and his love died on that cross for me. He took my punishment. He rose again from the dead. And I believe the only way my sins can be forgiven and I can go to heaven is through Jesus. So Jesus, save me and forgive me. And you know what? That is something of value that the world can never offer to you. But God can extend to you through his eternal opportunity in your lives. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for how... It speaks to us of the truth of who we are and where we're at. And Lord, we pray that your spirit would stir in our hearts to be responsive to the things that you have said to us this morning. Help us, Lord. Help us to be responsive to what it is that you've spoken to us in each one of our lives personally. For we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.